Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. A couple weeks ago, I was at, where else, but McDonald's. Every story I tell happens at McDonald's. You ever notice that? I was at McDonald's and these two older gentlemen come to me. They're describing that they are trying to share their faith with this group of individuals. And one of them is telling me a story about how he's uh, interacting with these unbelieving people. And he's sure enough, he's telling him this story. And he goes into this political discourse about something he believes political. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because you might get fired up about it, right? But this other individual who's sitting at the table gets so mad that he stands up and he's ready to cross the table at McDonald's, right? I mean, it's a flurry of Ben Gay and Old Spice coming across the, the table there, right? And so, you know, he's so fired up. He's got so much tension, so uh, hot under the collar about something. Maybe you're in that boat. Maybe you've experienced something like that recently, where we have so many people that are so fired up about things that are so meaningless. You know the feeling of conflict, don't you? Where the words kind of come into your ears and then they sink into your mind and you say something's wrong and then it goes a little deeper and it penetrates to your heart and you're offended and you're angry and then you can feel this kind of, this kind of welling up within you. Your heart rate increases, you, your hands clench, you get sweaty. Your body kind of gears up for conflict. Your jaw clenches you're like my dad you get that vein in your neck right we've all felt that everything in, inside of you is ready for conflict and and maybe in these last years in these last months we've felt that that feeling of just the rising tension and sometimes we can even check ourselves and i've had multiple conversations over these last six months where where people have said i'm getting really fired up about stupid things what is that Why are we so frustrated? Well, the good news this morning is that we come to a text that shows us how Jesus handles conflict. We come to a a passage in the scripture where Jesus is deeply offended by something that he sees. And, And we have this kind of roadmap then through the life of Jesus that shows us exactly how he handled conflict, and he handled it in perfect righteousness. So we're invited into this discussion in John chapter 2 about how Jesus handles conflict when he himself has his heart rate increase, when he himself feels his jaw clench. See, John 2 holds out a savior, Savior who is not content to let things lay as they are. But it's important for us to notice two things. What is it that upsets Jesus? And two, What is the fullness of his response? See, I hope that we might come away from this today with an even clearer view of Jesus than we entered with this morning. That we might understand Jesus to not just be the soft, gentle lamb, but also understand him to be the roaring lion. To see him as both merciful and kind, but also strong and just. Maybe sometimes we fall into the the trenches on either side of that road, don't we? 
We see Jesus as all wrath and justice, or we see Jesus as all mercy and kindness, but he's both of those things, and we don't want to draw that out of our text this morning. See, we're going to see this in three different phases. In verses 12 through 17, we're going to see that Jesus cleanses the temple because of its impurity, and then in verses 18 through 22, that Jesus promises to replace the temple with his resurrected body. And then in verses 23 through 25, we get something very unique in the book of John. We get a commentary from John himself so that John is saying some believers weren't really believers at all. We'll kind of navigate exactly what's happening in all of this. And all of this kind of culminates to this idea that we have in front of us that Jesus cleansed the temple by being a new temple. That Jesus truly cleans out the unrighteousness that he sees by promising himself as a sacrifice and a new way for us to connect with our God. And so I'm going to invite you this morning to John chapter 2, as we dive in this morning in John chapter 2, verse 12, I'm going to start off reading verses 12 through 17 for our first point, that Jesus cleanses the temple because of its impurity. Look at John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. <laughs> Oops. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Just a quick note about the structure. What we see is we see a a quick brief narrative that's given, some commentary at the end of each section in verses 17 and 22, and then a larger commentary in verses 23 through 25, kind of explaining what happens, what's, what's going on in this passage. So Jesus and his entourage, his mom and his brothers and his disciples, they go up or they come down and then they go up. They come down to Capernaum. It's elevation-wise where they were in Cana, a a 16-mile walk. They came down for a little holiday at the sea, and they stayed there for a few days, the text says in verse 12. And then finally, they turn back around, and they come up for this 80-mile trek up to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate what is described here as the Passover. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, that's a term coming back from Exodus chapter 12, when the nation of Israel was under slavery in the land of Egypt, and God came to Moses and told him to have each household sacrifice a spotless lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts and lentils so that the angel of death would pass over their household. And what happens is that the angel of death passes over the Israelites because of God's instruction, and he brings death to these Egyptians uh, in that land. And so the Egyptians finally allow the Israelites to go free. And so God had given this as a consistent holiday, as it were, kind of to celebrate this Passover. And so Jesus and his friends and his Mom and his brothers are all heading up to Jerusalem to do this, along with some two million people from all around the world. That's the estimates. But when Jesus comes into the temple, he doesn't find solemnity. He doesn't find the appropriate response with this keeping of something had to die for me not to die. What he finds is not solemnity, but sales. 
And Jesus walks into a temple and he finds the temple abused and compromised. We need to know this morning that there's two different words used here for temple in our passage. And I have a diagram to kind of describe exactly what's going on here. Dan's going to bring it up for us. There's the holy place in that red circle there. That's at the center of the temple. That's, that's where the presence of God was supposed to abide. Even the high priests were only supposed to go in once a year to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But then this word that's described here in verse 14 is this court of the Gentiles. You see those two green areas. That's describing kind of this, this place that Jesus enters into, and he finds kind of this marketplace going on. And he comes to this outer court, the last place where these Gentiles could enter, and he finds oxen and sheep and pigeons for sale. And, and we might step back and say, what in the world is happening here? Is this like a pet store? What's going on? Of course, they're offering these animals as sacrifices. And the idea is if you were coming from Italy to Jerusalem, bringing a goat along with you would have been a, kind of a hassle, Right? So you go to Jerusalem and you purchase your sacrifice there with the money that you exchange. This is exactly what happens. See, the problem here is not that an animal was in the sanctuary or an animal was in the court of the Gentiles. In fact, that's why the temple was built in the first place. So what was the problem? Why is Jesus so fired up about what's happening here? Well, he tells us in verse 16. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, in Jesus' mind, the temple is not a market. The temple is not a place for us to do sales. Our Kent Hughes describes exactly what's going on here. He says that money changers, they charged about two hours worth of wage. So we would say 20 to $30. They would charge you just to kind of exchange your, your foreign coins for, for more localized currency that was acceptable uh, for these merchants. And so you would, you would spend about two or three hours worth of wages just to change some of your money in. And depending on how much money you had to change in, that cost increased. So some people were coming and they were exchanging money and they were giving up a day's wage just to get the right coinage to pur- purchase uh, the sacrifice that they needed to make. The other description that he has is that a few years before this, someone had come in and robbed the temple treasury. Someone had come in at this instant in the Passover and robbed one of these money changers. And he describes that uh, he thinks it's as much as $20 million was taken away. This is like Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money afterward, right? I mean, this, this is a lot of money changing hands here in the temple. So Hughes is pointing out it was entirely feasible for you to get a, a pay, a day's wage for you to come and change your money. And these people were getting filthy rich off of the exchanges. Not to mention that they themselves also uh, were the ones over what sacrifices were acceptable. So if, if you brought a lamb and you showed it to these high priests, they said, no, that's defective. You need to buy one of our lambs. It was a racket in the truest sense of the word. See, Jesus' problem with the temple was not the sale of animals, but the greed of men. And so what he does in verses 15 through 16 is Jesus responds with truly righteous anger. Notice what he does. He makes a whip and he drives out what? People. That's what the text shows us this morning. Notice the wording of verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The people he's driving out, not the animals. That's what it's describing. 
Jesus has a whip, and he's driving out people. You see, John uses them, the people selling these animals out of the temple uh, with the sheep and the oxen. It's, it's, it's as if John is saying, Jesus drove, drives all those dirty animals out of the temple, and oh yeah, he drove out the sheep and oxen too, right? But he doesn't stop there. In verse 16, he turns to those selling these pigeons. Now, the idea of selling a pigeon is if you couldn't afford a sheep or an oxen, you didn't have enough money, you could buy something much smaller in size. And so he turns to these people and he's saying, you are just, you're to, to get out of here as well. Again, it's not that these people aren't supposed to have animals in the temple. It's the idea that they have done so, driven by greed. And so Jesus makes a scene. And this is what true righteous anger looks like. Imagine this chaos that Jesus produces. One commentator tries to make the case that Jesus was, was trying to turn over these temples and trying to drive these money changers out in a quiet way so as not to draw out too much attention by the Roman authorities. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you make a whip and use it on people and turn over tables filled with money without making a ruckus? That doesn't even make sense. See, Jesus is driving out animals and people with a whip. He's turning over tables filled with money. People are scurrying to pick up the coins that have fallen on the ground. There's just quite a commotion that's happening here in the temple grounds. And in verse 17, John gives us kind of a picture into the disciples' view of what exactly is happening as they're interpreting these actions. In verse 17, look what he says. He says that... um, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, John's actually giving us a window, a little bit of a commentary on what's happening here. John gives us a glimpse into the disciples' heads. And they quote Psalm 69.9 as they see Jesus' actions. Zeal for your father's house will consume consume me, excuse me, which is interesting, isn't it? See, in Psalm 69.9, what's happening is that David is so consumed with his zeal for Jerusalem and his zeal for the temple that he's actually finding that his enemies are, are challenging him based upon his zeal for God's house. And the disciples then are looking and they're remembering Psalm 69 and they're saying, see, Jesus, Jesus is like David. He faces opposition because of his zeal for his father's house. He faces opposition because of his righteousness. But notice that when we get to this passage, the tense has changed. See, in verse 17, uh, John records it as, zeal for your house will, future tense, consume me. Well, that's not the way it was written in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, zeal for your house is consuming me, present tense. See, John sees fit to change the tense to say, someday this zeal that Jesus has will will consume him. Someday this zeal that Jesus has will take him to Calvary. It will put him on a cross. He will lay down his life for this zeal for righteousness. John's looking forward and saying, drawing our eyes to this idea that Jesus would lay down himself as a sacrifice for righteousness. In verses 18 through 22, what happens is that the Jews at the temple, they want answers, right? Jesus has made this kind of scene. He's raised this hubbub, and they all want to know, by whose authority is Jesus doing these things? 
So look at verse 18 with me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, what happens is these Jews, they, they question whether Jesus has the right to do something. Like go into Walmart and just start tipping over racks and see what people say to you, right? Somebody's gonna speak up. And so sure enough, these temple authorities, these Jews come and they speak to Jesus in verse 18 and they raise the question, what sign do you show us for these things? What authority do you have? Show us that you have the authority through miraculous actions to do these things. Remember, this is all about, uh, the book of John is all about signs, right? And so here they are, they're requesting this sign. Jesus is performing these seven signs in this book to kind of show who he is. And these men, they show their true intention when they ask for a sign. Now notice what happens here. These men never come and they never say, hey, you know what, maybe, the, maybe this guy's right. Maybe our practice of selling animals at exorbitant cost to those who purchase them is a bad thing. That never happens. That reflection never occurs. The thing that they want to see is they want to see signs. They want to see miracles. You know, it's interesting. If you, if you watch people long enough, you can tell a lot about them. If you sit and watch someone's behavior, they'll show you exactly what they desire and what they want. Take, for instance, the dad who's yelling at the baseball game. It's almost springtime, right? And we're going to see the, the dad of the third grader who's yelling at his son to, you know, to pick up the ball or whatever else. He's showing you exactly what he wants. He's not concerned about the kid. He's concerned about him. Or the woman who has full makeup on but is in an, a workout outfit. That doesn't make any sense. They're showing you exactly what they're all about. And so these people, they're showing their hearts on their sleeve. These people aren't looking for God. They're looking for a magician. They want spectacle more than salvation. And so they're looking and they're pining for a sign to come from this person so that he could prove himself worthy of the action he just did. Needless to say, Jesus offers them no sign, but he, he speaks up in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. This causes all kinds of confusion. You know, Jesus spends a lot of his time con confusing people. You ever notice that? It gives me heart because I spend a lot of my time confusing people too. When we preach next week in John chapter 3, Jesus will approach Nicodemus and he'll say, unless a man can be born again, he won't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' mind is blown. He's like, what, what does that even mean? In John chapter 4, he'll go to this uh, Samaritan woman at a well and he'll start talking to her and he'll say that he will give her water that leads to eternal life and she's abundantly confused. Just last week, we saw that Jesus' interaction with his own mother was confusing to her. See here, these Jews are confused about the temple. They, they, they think that Jesus is speaking about this physical building that took 46 years to complete. In fact, it wasn't completed yet. It wouldn't actually be completed to something like 60 AD, and then it would be destroyed seven years later. 
And so they're super confused about what's happening, what Jesus is speaking about, and they, they ask him about it, and sure enough, it leads to just more interactions. But John comments in verse 21, and he says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is clarifying to say, hey, Jesus wasn't talking about the, the physical stone temple. Jesus was talking about his own life. See, whether these Jews understood it or not, Jesus presented himself as the true temple. And even if they were to tear down his temple, he would raise it up again in three days. It's worth noting here that everything Jesus was willing to criticize, he was also willing to rebuild. Jesus isn't just one to angrily turn over temples and, or tables in the temple and storm off. Jesus promises something better in their stead. He criticizes what's happening in the temple in order to raise up a better, better temple in his body. This is Jesus' statement of authority to cleanse the temple. He himself will be the new temple. So what happens then in John 20, or 2, 23 through 25 is that John gives us this commentary. It's as if John kind of hits the pause button on the whole story, and he wants us to pull away and, and start to understand some of the implications of what happens. He wants to give us this brief commentary on the response of these people to Jesus. And look at what he says in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We get this statement in verse 23 that many people are believing in Jesus. And that's our word, isn't it? That, that word that's so significant in the book of John, believe. And so we should kind of clue in that this is kind of a big deal. And, and John's describing for us all of these people that are coming to believe but Jesus doesn't really believe in them. In fact, that's kind of the wordplay that's happened here. That the word that's used in verse 23 that says believe is repeated in verse 24 as entrust. It's the, kind of the same root word. And so uh, D.A. Carson kind of summarizes it. He says, the people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. And it raises this question of why does Jesus not entrust himself to these people who supposedly are believing in them? What's happening? Why is Jesus so slow to give himself to these individuals? Verse 23 clues us in. Now, when he was in Jerusalem as the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. There it is, that issue of signs again. Jesus is kind of consistently critical of those who would believe just based solely on signs. When we get to the end of John chapter 4, verse 48, he's going to say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In, in the book of Matthew, he tells people, he said, if the signs and wonders that had been formed amongst you would have been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Jesus knew exactly what would have been required for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to repent, and yet they didn't provide it. See, Jesus is saying faith built upon uh, signs and wonders is a very spurious or, or um, kind of shaky faith. See, when we demand signs of God for us to believe, the signs become more important to us than him. It's as if the signs themselves are more God than God. 
And so faith, which relies upon signs, oftentimes isn't really faith at all. It's something else. Jesus is commenting, John is commenting on Jesus' interaction here, and he's saying, Jesus did not entrust himself. Now, you might ask the question, does Jesus ever entrust himself to man? Well, we fast forward to John chapter 10, and Jesus says this. Uh, He says that um, he lays down his life for the sheep. See, in John chapter 10, we see this statement from Jesus that he does entrust himself to others. Jesus will entrust himself to those who have genuine faith in him. In fact, the disciples themselves are said to believe in Jesus in this passage in verses 11 and 22, not based upon the signs and wonders, but because of genuine faith, a genuine interaction with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't entrust himself to these temporary converts, as it were. We might stop and say, wait a minute, okay, what's going on here? How do we understand this passage? And I want to under- I just highlight some of the movements of what's actually happening here to kind of pull this text together. See, Jesus is given as our true temple that we might connect with our Father through him. Right? If you understand the Old Testament, the, the temple was this place where God's people came and offered sacrifices so that they could atone for their sins and be restored or be made right with God, or at least uh, kind of a shadow of things to come. And so what we see is that Jesus first sees the corruption of this temple. He sees our corruption. He sees that we corrupt everything with our sinfulness, such that even the temple has these two purposes, that one is to make sacrifices, but also people are using it to make money for themselves. It kind of highlights what he says in verse 25, that Jesus himself knew what was in man. See, we see that we recognize that Jesus sees us for what we are. He sees all of our sinful intentions. He sees our desires. He sees the things that we do when we're alone. He sees all of it. See, this seems almost too simple to say, doesn't it? God knows you. Jesus knows you. For something that we just bypassed, that Jesus was existent before the creation of the world. He's existed forever. He knows all things thoroughly, and you are no exception to that. Right? For some of us, this is a fearful thing. We, we recognize that God knows everything about me. He sees the, the quiet intentions of my heart that no one else knows. Now, for others, it's a comfort that God saw you and still pursued you. That he saw you, that he knew all the intricacies of your sinfulness, and he still sent Christ to purchase you. Notice that when Jesus steps into the temple and he sees it just broken and ruined, he doesn't just throw up his hands and walk out. Jesus is dedicated to its redemption, which brings us to our next point. Jesus is zealous to change it, even to the point of his death. Jesus confronts the wayward temple life. He drives out animals and money changers, overturns the temples, all to highlight that the temple was to have a different purpose. It was his purpose or pursuit of his father's way that ultimately led to Jesus's death. And so Jesus sees the impurity of this temple and he promises to give his own life to restore temple life, to restore his people through his own death and resurrection. And it doesn't just end there that Jesus is raised to be the new temple on our behalf. 
See, Jesus sees our impurity. He sees our desecrated temple, and he rebuilds it in his own life and death. So that Jesus has relocated our relation to God, no longer in some stone building off in some corner of the world in Jerusalem. Now we worship wherever we are in the Spirit because Christ is raised from the dead. So let's put aside all the analogies for a second. Jesus saw our sinfulness. He knew what was in man. He knew that our attempts at religion would only end up in desecrated temples and sinfulness and sinful expressions. And so Jesus gave his own life to establish righteousness for us. And he freely distributes us, distributes that righteousness to us by faith. See, by his death, he paid the penalty of our sin. And in his new life, we have reunion with God. Isn't that good news? See, before we interpret this passage and say, this is about Jesus' uh, zeal for righteousness, and so I should be zealous for righteousness, we should stop and see that Jesus' zeal for righteousness led to his self-sacrificial death. I want to pose a question to us this morning. And I wonder if Jesus is turning tables over in our life. I wonder if we see ourselves as this impure, desecrated temple that needs the the cleansing and purification of, of Jesus' new life. See, the truth is this morning that true faith changes you. True faith actually changes you. It it gives you a desire to become something different than what you were in your previous life. And if you're here this morning, you say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but you haven't changed an iota from what you were 10 years ago. The question is, is your faith genuine? J.C. Ryle says this way. He says, boast not in Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. See, I'm afraid that in an effort to make Christianity accessible, we've actually distorted the basic claims of our faith. We have so made the gospel based on faith alone that we've allowed for a faith that exists without holiness, which is no faith at all. We've allowed for a Christian faith to exist with money changers in the temple, as it were. We accommodate every inclination of the heart. We slap a little bit of Jesus on the side of it, and all of a sudden we call it Christian. And dare we say this morning, if Jesus is not turning over tables in your life, are you sure that he's made sacrifice for you? You We've worked hard as a church to kind of define true faith. If there's a way to kind of summarize our last five years that we've just really put ourselves to kind of defining what it is that true faith actually looks like. Because we've kind of allowed for this kind of uh, allowance of, of just variance and belief and, and accommodating of sin and everything else. And we've, we've tried to bring out the nature of true saving faith and separate it from the religious services so often peddled in churches. And time and time again, we've come back to this one assurance that righteous living proves the active life of God in you. That when Jesus is turning over the temple or tables in your temple, as it were, it's proof that he's actually still at work in you. Right? Romans 8 says it this way that if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
John gives us various assurances of our faith, but one of those is that we would actually walk like Jesus walked, that we would live like Jesus lived. See, this morning, if we are truly to interact with others with righteous, holy anger, we have to have the confidence that God's still working in us. See, true faith must change us before we can seek to change anyone else, right? When we're brought into conflict with others, we have different viewpoints and different understandings of things. If we're to change anyone else, we've got to first make sure that we ourselves are being changed. After all, if we're honest, we've all allowed some kind of money changer into our temple, haven't we? We've all compromised God's demands on our purity. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says. When we use truth to change others in ways that we're unwilling to change, uh, the Bible calls us hypocrites. When we use truths in the lives of another that we're not willing to have it affect our lives in the same way, that's called hypocrisy. The truth is, this morning, if we're going to be critical of someone else or someone else's sins or social critics or whatever else it might be, we might want to see Jesus' example of righteous anger first. We're going to stop here. If we're going to talk about righteous anger, I feel like we have to put the warning label on this. I don't know if you've ever seen like those ridiculous warning labels, like where you pick up a lawnmower, don't put your you know, fingers underneath the deck or whatever. Let's give a warning label about what it is to have righteous anger. I can honestly say that in my 30 years of Christian living, I don't know that I've ever been both righteous and angry. I don't know that that's ever happened. And the times in my life where I believe I've come close were were very short stints. Most of my experience in anger has resulted in regret. Maybe you experienced that and you feel the same. But if we're to talk about what it is to live in righteous anger, we've got to address some of the issues on the table, don't we? Ephesians 4 holds it out to be possible. Paul says, he says, in your anger, do not sin. But don't let the sun go down on your anger. His statement is, is to say, act on your anger in such a way that brings about righteousness. And don't allow your anger to so reside within you that it actually brings about sinfulness. So I have a few tips here for righteous anger as someone who's never experienced it. Tip number one, righteous anger extends from deep communion with God. Righteous anger extends from deep communion with God. Consider the example of Jesus. What is his concern in turning over the temples? He's concerned for his father's house. Deep communion with God brings about righteousness, and righteous anger will never be found in the moment. It comes from a a time of, of continued communion and reflection and seasons of prayer. If we are to be righteous and anger, it will take time for our hearts to get aligned with the heart of our Father. And so do not anticipate that in a moment's notice, you will flip from being happy and contented to righteously angry. That will not happen. Righteous anger extends from deep communion with our God and patterns of prayer and patterns of submission to his will. Tip number two. Make sure that you're willing to build back whatever you tear down. 
Notice the example of our Savior Jesus. When he critiques the temple and what's happening in the temple, he promises to raise it back up better and new. Isn't that the hope of our Savior this morning? He doesn't tear things down without promising to rebuild them better than what they were. There was a certain grace in the temple of of connection with God, but it was better in the new temple that is Jesus Christ so that we could commune with God in such a way that would honor and glorify Jesus Christ. So if you're going to be critical, if you're going to be brought into conflict with someone else, make sure that your words are prepared to build up and not tear down. Namely, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring in the redemptive element of of what God wants to do in redemption to Christ, through Christ. Some examples, if you want to end or see the end of Roe versus Wade, like many of us do, are you willing to also care for orphans? If you want to see the end of sexual uh, relationships that are dishonoring to Christ, are you willing to get into the nitty-gritty of someone else's life and see redemption in Christ? Are you willing? Are you counting the cost? Are you just speaking words? I'm against this. I'm against that. I'm tearing down. I'm tearing down. I'm tearing down. Are you willing to bring about the renewal, the betterment in Jesus Christ, the restoration unto God? Are you willing we're not willing to be gospel-rooted people, we best keep our mouths closed. If we're not willing to apply the grace and mercy of Christ, we best not act at all. So tip number one, righteous anger extends from deep communion with God. Tip number two, make sure that you're willing to build back what you tear down. Tip number three, Make sure you know the difference between righteous anger and self-righteousness. Make sure you know the difference between righteous anger and self-righteousness. See, self-righteousness is consumed with me. It begins and it ends with my design and my desire. The righteous anger is consumed with the Lord. Its beginning and its end is the honor and fame of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Jesus is doing? He's interacting, turning over money changers' tables. He's driving out people and animals alike because he's consumed with his Father's name. See, we're reminded this morning, we say it again, that Jesus... Whatever Jesus was willing to tear down, whatever Jesus was willing to criticize, he planned to rebuild. Jesus was able to be righteous in this moment in his anger because his concern was for his Father's name and not his own. And I wonder sometimes how many times my Facebook posts, my my interactions, my bumper stickers, my, my yard signs, my water cooler conversations would meet this test. Someday when an all-seeing God uh, kind of lays out the story of my life and he inspects those interactions and he looks at those interactions, will they be found to be righteous or will they be found to be selfish? 
See, if Jesus cleansed the temple by sacrificing his body, you and I have everything we need to bring about redemption, to speak gracious words and kindness to others around us in conflict, don't we? In this area, in this era of political conflict, of, of just angry individuals and everything else, we have everything we need for life and godliness. The, the abundant grace of Jesus coats us in such a way that we can interact with them with constant goodness and mercy and grace in Christ. We don't have to be angry all the time. talking to a friend yesterday and just describing that there's been times in my life where I just realize I'm driving in the car, I'm, I'm whatever else it is, I'm just angry. I'm an angry person right now, and I don't know why. You ever experienced that? You don't know why you're angry, you're just upset. I'm here to tell you this morning that by the new temple, Jesus Christ, you're able to, to engage others with grace and mercy. I want to pray this morning that we become people who speak grace. Isn't that the, the definition that we saw in John chapter 1? That Jesus came filled with grace and truth. And so often we're tempted to do one or the other. Speak truth or speak grace. Let's be those who speak both. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would allow us, like your son, to be those who speak grace and truth to one another. That if we're drawn into conflict with others, that we might be both gracious and truthful. Lord, we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are one who came and was not content to just be loving. Or you were not content just to be condemning. Jesus, you were content to be loving and just. And Heavenly Father, it's your love and justice that came and brought us to Calvary where your love and justice were shown with finality. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would make us people like him. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.